Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 20-2-0 of Sober Speak. I, I can't believe we've got 20 of these. Uh, well, I guess we have 19 in the bag now. We're about to have our 20th recorded, but uh, uh, thanks to all you guys listening out there. I'm just, uh, I'm glad this thing has gotten a little bit of traction. So anyway, this episode number 20 is brought to you by Kimberly, Chris, Kirsten, and Dawn. Uh, they went to the uh, SoberSpeak.com website, clicked on the Donate tab, and made a contribution. Thank you so much for your generous contribution, Kirsten, Kimberly, and Don. This episode's for you, or as I like to say, this bud's for you. But anyway, at SoberSpeak, you will find podcasts of men and women sharing their experience uh, and their stories centered around the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps of Recovery. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and I'll be the host of this episode. Uh, consider SoberSpeak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. And I have my friend Casey W here today, and I asked Casey to bring something along for him that he'd like to read today, and he's going to share that with us right now. So I'll turn it over to you, Casey. All right, John, so bear with me. It's a little bit long here. This is uh, Dr. Bob's last message, um, a speech that he gave at a conference, uh, his last public address, and I'm just going to read an excerpt from it. It says, there are two or three things that flashed into my mind on which would be fitting to lay a little emphasis. One is the simplicity of our program. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes and things that are interesting to the scientific mind, but have very little to do with our actual AA work. Our 12 steps, when simmered down to the last, resolve themselves into the words love and service. We understand what love is, and we understand what service is, so let's bear those two things in mind. Let us also remember to guard the erring member of the tongue, and if we must use it, let's use it with kindness and consideration and tolerance. And one more thing, none of us would be here today if somebody hadn't taken time to explain things to us, to give us a little pat on the back, to take us to a meeting or two, to do numerous little kind and thoughtful acts on our behalf. So let us never get such a degree of smug complacency that we're not willing to extend or attempt to extend to our less fortunate brothers that help which has been so beneficial to us. Thank you so much, Casey. And I believe uh, Dr. Bob was in a very ill at that time, mm -hmm. if I'm uh, not mistaken. That's right. and, uh, and that was his last public address. Is that right? That's right. It was. Uh, I forget which conference it was, but it was at a uh, it was at a world conference, and uh, you know, it was right right as they were doing the twelve traditions. You know, yeah. for the first time, that yeah. happened right before his death, and uh, yeah. uh, he was. He and Bill were such a yin and yang. It was so important that we had both of those for the program, uh, and I certainly relate to him and his story. So very nice, yeah. very yeah. So uh, we welcome all of your comments, and you can get in touch with us in a couple of different ways. Uh, you can go to soberspeak.com and click on the uh, contact us tab, or you can email us directly at feedback at soberspeak.com. We not only welcome your feedback, but highly encourage it. SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy. We neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Please remember we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave, at the, cur leave the rest at the curb. Thank you, Casey. Uh -huh. And uh, just a, just one quick announcement before we dive into Casey's story here, and that is, uh, um, just so you all know, uh, most of you listen through like Podbean or you listen through uh, iTunes, but you can actually, believe it or not, go up to an Alexa. We have an Alexa here in our house, and we actually tested this out, and say, hey, Alexa, play Sober Speak podcast, and it will... It'll crank it out. Nice. Yeah, you can actually forward. You can go backwards and forwards cool. in the uh, episodes. It's really kind of yes. cool. Uh, you can also access this on uh, TuneIn uh, Radio on the internet, YouTube, and Google Play. All right, so that's enough of the stuff, all right? <laughs> let's get into Casey here. So, yeah, let's let's talk about when you, you say the yin and yang with Dr. Bob right. and Bill W. there. Yep. Talk a little bit about well, that. Well, you know... Bill was the consummate salesman and promoter, you know, and I don't mean that in a negative way, um, uh, and was really the person who had kind of the enthusiasm to 
want to make AA reach far and wide, you know, and Dr. Bob was the guy. I mean, if, if Bill had been in charge of it, the thing might've got run into the ground really fast. And if, if Bob had been in charge of it, such a humble and quiet guy, it might still just be like 10 people in Akron, you know I mean? So uh, they really needed the two of them together to balance each other out. I think. Yeah. The chemistry. That's right. right. That's right. uh, Yeah. Very good. And you know, I, I, I think I've talked about this on another episode. I can't, I can't remember, but uh, you know, I've actually been to Dr. Bob's. Have you ever been there? I have not. I would love to do that. Oh, it, it was a, it was an, an incredible experience mm-hmm. and I, I don't want to go too far into this but it actually has 12 it's Dr. Bob's house right. in Akron they actually have 12 steps lead up to the right. house and um, uh, you know out in the living room they have the book of James mm-hmm. uh, from the Bible which they you know which is what they had meetings right. back then you know right. a work with faith without works is dead yep. you got to see the little bed where he died a little bitty mm-hmm. house you know yep. uh, it, just incredible that must but, be awesome all right, so so uh, let's. Uh, uh, I I was able to this week listen to a bit of your story that was actually out. Mm-hmm. If you're okay with me mentioning, yeah, this, of course, on uh, on YouTube, and uh, so I was uh, listening to it, and uh, it struck me that we have very similar backgrounds. So I, I want to ask you about this right off the bat, and that is, you were raised by a single mom. That's is that right. correct? Yep. So why don't you I mean, take us back into the beginning yeah. there, and you know what your childhood was like, you know. Where you came from? Yeah, so uh, uh, born in Dallas, Texas, you know, a fifth generation Texan. Um, my parents got divorced, I guess, when I was three or four, something like that. And so lived with my mom, a school teacher. She's also one of us um, and, and got sober a couple of years after I got sober. Mm. And so uh, really a lot of, you know, I'm growing up in the late 70s, early 80s. And so a lot of my childhood was... Um, going to school, coming home, you know, latchkey kid, yeah, uh, and, and spending a, a significant amount of time by myself at home. So you were an only child. That's right. And um, to the club. Uh, there you go. And then my my mom um, would a lot of times have a second job, or she would go out with her friends after work. And so a, a lot of times I'd be at home from school for you know hours at a time before mom would get home. Not not easy to make ends meet when you're a you know a single mom and mm-hmm. and a school teacher. Mm-hmm. And so uh, had a lot of alone time when I was a kid. So, so okay. So so that that was your time with your mom when you were mm-hmm. a kid. And so um, so, so did you start to get into trouble in those teen years? Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, the we, we lived in Richardson and um, uh, lived there until I, I guess I was 15. My mom... Um, and for those of you who are listening and this don't know what Richardson is, mm-hmm. Richardson is a suburb yep. of D- the Dallas, Dallas, Texas. It area. would have been considered a north suburb then. It's right. probably a central <laughs> suburb now as big as Dallas has gotten. But uh, at the time, it was kind of a north suburb of Dallas. And so... Um, and then when I when I was 15, I was uh, I was in ninth grade, and my mom went into business uh, with another school teacher. They actually bought a restaurant in Florida, and so I moved out to Florida for a year. Um, what kind of restaurant? Seafood was? restaurant. Really? Okay. And it was it was really a, a great <laughs> amount of fun. Um, I would did go you to, work? In I those? did. Yeah. So I would go to school during the day, and then uh, school let out pretty early uh, at the school that I went to, and so I'd go straight from school to the restaurant, work all night, and then um, Saturdays would work all day. We were closed on Sundays, but really Monday through Saturday was either at school or at work, and I had started to get into some trouble before I... Um, before we moved to Florida, uh-huh. and, and then how old were you? At this I was time? 15, okay. uh, and then when I moved to Florida, older friends at the restaurant yeah. started to kind of, uh, you know, uh, um, started to act a little bit like an adult. My mom was very busy with the restaurant, wasn't paying as much attention to what I was doing, and mm-hmm. so I had imagined, uh, I had managed in that one year to kind of get myself into enough trouble that my mom was ready for me to not be in the house anymore. So I got kicked out of the house when I was 16. And, and fortunately, my dad um, uh, 
for me, had found himself recently divorced, and so I moved from Florida after being there for a year ah. to Austin. Oh, okay. And so finished my last two years of high school in Austin, went to college in Austin, and certainly when I moved from Florida to Austin, you know, uh, got even into a lower denominator of friends, right. you know, <laughs> got myself into more trouble, started, you know, not just drinking, but, you know, other things. and was I've never heard of friends <laughs> described that way. A lower denominator. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I'm sure they're wonderful people today. But no, at no, the time, we were all right. just getting ourselves yeah. in as much trouble as possible. But I was part of that low denomination, yes. right? As I was I. Did. As was yeah. I. <laughs> All right, so that's what so then in Austin, um, so so then take me a little bit forward. Then I mean, how did so you were in Austin? Did you you went to school there? Did you go to I University did, so of I Texas? Went, I did. I went to University of Texas. So I I, I did my junior and senior year at McCallum uh, High School in Austin, and then uh, went to college uh, at University of Texas, and so. While I was in school, my poor dad, you know, here's, it was a difficult situation for him. I think about him now because he was really my age when I came to live with him. So he's gone from really no kids in the house uh, and kind of living this bachelor lifestyle to now he's got this out of control teenager right. that he's in charge of. Right. And my dad's dad was, a, from my understanding, a really bad alcoholic, died of cirrhosis, uh, um, violent, you know, and so my dad had kind of always stayed away from alcohol. And instead of kind of tough love, he really kind of let me do what I wanted to when I moved to uh, Texas. And so that had resulted in me, you know, going out with friends. I'd sleep in my car sometimes, not come home and didn't have a lot of consequences. There were a lot of phone calls to the house from school for bad behavior. And so, um, for me, what ended up kind of at least getting the ball rolling was that I had a bunch of friends that had gone off to treatment. My dad was seeing a woman, uh, after I had moved there and, um, through divine intervention, she had a daughter that was my age that was one year sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. So kind of this combination of things. My dad started talking about maybe I should go to treatment. So was that your first... Um is that how you heard? Like, yeah, everyone I, hears of it I mean, in a different way. So I had seen, um, God, what was it? Clean and Sober, yeah, yeah, the yeah. movie. I think of Michael Keaton maybe yeah, was yeah, in that yeah. movie. And so that's the only thing I knew. You know, dark room, light bulb, <laughs> cigarette smoke. You know, and, and so I really didn't know much about it at all. I had had some friends that had gone off to treatment, uh -huh. um, but they hadn't really talked about what that aftercare was supposed to be, which was going to meetings and doing all those kind of things, yeah. right? So I had just, you know, I had friends that were getting shipped off for thirty six. 60 or 90 days and telling me the horror stories of treatment, you know, um, which was basically no drinking, no smoking, you know, that's, that's the horror story, right? And so the more my dad had talked about treatment, the more I had really kind of in my mind, at least really rebelled against wanting to do that. Yeah. And so as a last ditch effort yeah. to put forward a, a good foot, um, I had told my dad that I would be willing to go to meetings with which what would he would end up getting married and would be my stepsister, oh. uh, go to meetings with my stepsister. Um, and, and, you know, he got very emotional, you know, but I, I really and and when I say my dad got emotional, he, you know, uh, Dirt for dirt poor farmer, you know, um, raised in Louisville, Texas, which is another suburb of Dallas. Right. Uh, went to Vietnam, paid his way through college. You know, I mean, just uh, uh, the only man in his family besides his um, uh, besides his father had three sisters and his mom, and so tough guy. You know, my dad's a tough guy; doesn't show a lot of emotion, and, and so for him to get emotional, that may have been the first time I'd ever seen him get emotional. Um, but I, you know, I didn't have any feeling about it. I was really just—it was another ploy for me to try to, you know, avoid consequences. Right. You know. Right. So you went to that. So you. So you're with your. Did you go with your? I did. Sister? So. It, so. <laughs> all right. So this was January first of 1990. I was going to go to a meeting with her, and so. Um, we went to the Unity Group in Austin, which is not there anymore. It was off of Far West Boulevard in a little strip center. And, um, you know, I had, um, 
I had had a couple of cases of Schinerbach left, you know, yeah. don't throw away beer, right? So I had a couple of beers <laughs> before my first AA meeting. And uh, Wait, were we, you still in high school or still in high school? Senior, senior, okay, senior okay, in high gotcha, school. Gotcha. And so, and this was, yeah, so this is the middle of my senior year of high school. And so go to that first meeting. Of course, everyone's very kind. I, I mentioned I saw clean and sober. I got up, I got my chip, yeah. you know, and, and <laughs> I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of emotion at that meeting. I felt uncomfortable, right? You know, I, uh, I wasn't sure. I'm sure I wasn't listening. There were plenty of people that came up and talked to me afterwards, which was really sweet, but it made me very uncomfortable. You know, I just didn't want to be there. And so we get back out to her car and, um, you know, I'm like, Oh, so great. You know, thank you so much for bringing me, you know, I need a good report back to my dad. And, <laughs> and you know, she said, uh, she said, well, you know, we'll keep coming back. And I was like, why? why? You know, I got my chip, no problem. She goes, well, you know, you're supposed to, it's kind of recommended 90 meetings in 90 days. And I just thought, Whoa. oh my goodness, this is a huge overreaction. But if I'm going to continue to kind of keep my nose clean here, I agreed to do that with her. And so I went to, we went to meetings for another two weeks and um, the, the couple of beers before the meeting experiment went pretty well. So I kept going down that road. And on January 12th of 1990, going with my sister, sister. same meeting, same time. And so January 12th of 1990, everyone went to Coco's afterwards, like Denny's. I don't know if Coco still exists, but pancakes and coffee and cigarettes, you know. And so at this point, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel more comfortable, right? And I'm, I've been drinking before every meeting. And, And so I'm at Coco's and I'm, I don't know how drunk I was, probably fairly drunk. And a guy came up to me. Uh, at Coco's that he was actually the, he was actually the guy who spoke at the first meeting I'd ever gone to. It was a speaker meeting and he was, you know, he's waving the book and talking about God. And, 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 and so he makes me very uncomfortable, right? I wasn't, uh, I, I was, because he has a book and he's yeah, talking about the whole God. thing. So, <laughs> the whole thing. so he, he kind of pulls me to the side, you know, and I can tell he wants to have a serious conversation with me. And he says, um, he says, when are you going to stop drinking? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I've been coming to these meetings. And he says, yeah, you know, you've been coming to the meetings, but everybody knows that you've been drinking before meetings. And apparently I found out later that he was like the designated person to talk to the guy <laughs> who was coming to meetings and drinking, you know. And so I, I, I'll tell you this, I got my first grain of honesty. And I had had plenty of consequences up to that point. My mom kicked me out of the house. My dad was wanting to send me to treatment. I was always in trouble at school. I was always in trouble with police. I mean, just everyone knew, you know. But truthfully, the book talks about delusion. And on January 12th of 1990, I was suffering from delusion. And that delusion was that, and I didn't put it in these words, the book puts it in the words, but I I really thought that at some point in time, I was going to be able to control and enjoy my drinking. You know, I'm 17, you know, I'm, I'm more than a little more than three years away from my 21st birthday. And so I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking an alcoholic is a homeless person, you know, or somebody who's lost their family and all their money and doesn't have a car. And, you know, I don't know the definition uh, that the book gives of alcoholism at that time. And so, so he says to me, he says to me, when are you going to quit drinking? And I say, you know, I said, I honestly, and this was the truth at the time. I don't think I have a problem with alcohol. I think I have a problem with drugs. And he said to me, well, that's great news. He said, if you don't have a problem with alcohol, then not drinking should be easy. <laughs> Knock yourself out. You know? Right. And, and I just thought, I have got to get away from this person. <laughs> you know what I mean? At this point, I don't have a good answer for that, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so um, we leave. I'm on my way out to the car. And it just, that sentence just keeps rolling over and over in my head. You know, I, I had gotten myself into some scrapes and said, Oh, I'm not going to drink anymore, you know, and then the next day, I mean, really, honestly, that last couple of years, I I didn't go more than a day or two without something. And so um, I just thought, you know what, I I don't have a problem with alcohol and this will be easy and this is it. And that ended up being my sobriety day that January 13th of 1990 is my sobriety day. But uh, I, I certainly didn't think you know, and I probably didn't even have the mindset maybe of somebody who had hit bottom. I felt like in the coming weeks, you know, was, was really when I ended up hitting bottom. My, 
I sat in those meetings for a couple of weeks, very uncomfortable. You know, um, I think it's Clancy describes it as that spring that's getting tightened, you know, tighter and tighter. And I just felt more and more uncomfortable in my skin. And, and a guy came up to me a couple of weeks into coming to meetings and he said, do you have a sponsor? And I said, I don't. And he said, well, then I'm going to be your sponsor. <laughs> Younger guy in the program, a, a friend of other people that I had known there. And so he and I started working steps together. And that's really when, in my mind at least, the journey really began when I started. When we sat down and read more about alcoholism, the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, you know, that beginning of more about uh, the beginning of... Um, the beginning of we agnostics, that one little paragraph that talks about, you know, uh, if when you start, it's hard for you to stop. Or when you start, it's you're unable to control the amount that you take. You may, you're probably alcoholic, right. you know. And when that definition was presented to me, I was like, holy smokes, I am probably alcoholic, <laughs> you know. And, and, and that's really where it started. So you started with, so you, so the sponsor says, I'm going to be your sponsor. Yep. And uh, what did he, I mean, what did he, so you were reading the book, mm-hmm. obviously. And where did he take you after that? And you, so he, he really, um, he, he did a great job in that we met often. He gave me assignments. We read together. He explained it to me. Um, and so we did the first step together. I became pretty convinced of the first step after having some conversation with him and, and um, reflecting back on my drinking. And some people come into the program and they know they're alcoholic, you know, uh, uh, and that's fine too. You know, I was just one of those that at that time didn't know until we started to have these conversations together. And so my first delusion when I walked into AA was that I, I was an alcoholic. You know, that was my delusion and I was an alcoholic. The second delusion that I had, and this presented itself in steps two and three, was that I wasn't selfish. You know, I thought that I was a pretty kind person, you know, and so when I'm reading uh, in the book and it's describing things as, I love this one part of the book that talks about um, that uh, alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot. And I remember reading that and just thinking that that wasn't me, you know, and then the next sentence is, though he usually doesn't, doesn't think, think so, so, you know? <laughs> and and so uh, that spoke to me a little bit, but he and I had a lot of conversations about steps two and three, because the other thing was I had always um, thought of myself as having a high intellect, you know, and I had always thought that God was for someone who... Um, wasn't smart, right. didn't have, um, uh, didn't, uh, gosh, I, I don't want to uh, just that that was a delusion, you know, that, that belief in God was a delusion. Right. And, and so when it was kind of presented that, you know, the solution to alcoholism is now developing this relationship with a higher power, which I couldn't get past just calling it God, um, and kind of thinking to my childhood Christian God, which I didn't have like this terrible view of, but I thought, I've gone to church, and so if that would have worked, then that would have already happened for me, you know? And so I, I didn't I didn't understand that kind of faith without works, you know, piece of it. Yeah. And so when we sit down to do steps two and three together. I, I'm getting pretty honest with him, you know, and, and, and I, I'm, you know, I have my debate hat on and I'm ready to talk to him about why this is not going to work for me. <laughs> and so uh, we sit down and have... Like when you say why it's not going to work, you know about the God... That's exactly right. Why, why I'm not ready for step three, right? right? This is the conversation that I want to have with him. And he says to me, um, he, he, we didn't have any conversation we sat down and he said, do you think you have a problem? And I said, yes. And he said, do you think there's a solution? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to go with the solution? And I said, yes. And he said, well, then let's get on our knees and pray. You know, we did the third step prayer. And it's, it's funny in the book, right after the third step prayer, it says, we thought well, well before <laughs> taking this step, right? But he and I didn't. And it, that was okay. Yeah. Because when I think about it, my sponsor did. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we, so we, but we talked about it afterwards, mm-hmm. and he just described it to me in the most simplest term. You know, I mentioned Bill's a salesman, right? He does this beautiful piece of sales in um, uh, in We Agnostics, which is, do I now believe or am I even willing to believe in a power greater than myself? You know, and it was hard for me to look at myself at so that time. Let, let, yeah, let, yeah, let, go ahead. Let's go ahead. stop on that because I really think that, that that's mm-hmm. a... Uh, 
you know, people out there, there's going to be some people who uh, listening to this who who really don't know anything about the big book, yeah. right? But that is a, uh, a cornerstone, if you Absolutely. will, in the book. And so the line is, once again... Do I do I do I believe, or am I willing to believe right. that there is a power greater than myself? Yep. So, uh, go into that a little bit deeper. So, w- yeah. what what you were going through in your head at that time? Because that's kind of a, it's kind of black and white. Yeah, it is. Language. So let's talk about. We'll talk about. Let's talk a little bit about a history because I love a history. So there's the Oxford Group, right? right? And, and a lot of these guys came in through the Oxford Group, very Christian group, and so. You know, our first 100 with Bill and Bob and that first group, mm-hmm. um, most of those guys were Christian. Most of those guys came through the Oxford group. Mm-hmm. Our 12 steps come from the six steps of the Oxford group, right? And so... Ebby. Right? Ebby that, that whole group. Ebby, Roland. You know, there's a, a whole group of guys that kind of brought that together. But there was this vocal minority of that first 100 as Bill's writing this book and designing this program to describe what they're doing currently. This vocal minority that says this can't be Christian based. This can't be just God in a box. Right. Mm -hmm. This needs to be open to as many people as it can be. And so. Again, if it had been one person, Bill, writing this book, or even Bill and Bob just writing this book, it'd probably be a Christian-based book. It probably would have been something that might not have... Because now you have this universal appeal that anyone can touch. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to believe in uh, anything specific about God. There doesn't have to be any kind of dogma around it. And I go to church, so I'm not... Well, I don't I have any issue with religion. Right. Right. Um, but... If I had come to my first meeting and someone had said Jesus Christ in that meeting, I would have been very turned off by that and would not have made it as far as I did. And so going through my mind at that time, I hadn't got over this idea that God was this Christian God or you know religion. And he explained it to me in that it doesn't matter what you believe in. You know, we talk about a doorknob or a tree or whatever, or the meeting, you know, group of drunks or good orderly direction or whatever makes sense for you. You know, uh, he was one of those guys that, you know, do you believe that I believe? If you believe that I believe, that's enough. So people start from all different places, right? Some people start with this strong belief in God when they get here, you know, and some people on this other end of the spectrum, which was me was don't believe in God. And so, and they both have their upsides. They do. They really do. Uh, You know, it's interesting as I sponsor guys, especially when I was early on sponsoring people, Mm -hmm. I always assumed that everyone was going to have an issue with God. Right. (laughs) And so whenever I'm meeting with a sponsee and we're talking about the third step and they're like, yep, check, got it. You know, I believe in God. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Let's really, you know, but you don't need to. And it says in the book that, you know, half of us generally, half of us have some kind of belief and half of us don't. And it's either one is okay. And so, and sometimes the people that grew up with some sort of religion, even though they believe in the God have to unlearn some pieces of that and establish a new connection. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, the book, I don't necessarily think it, there's this need to invent God per se. I know sometimes we kind of this, uh, choose your own God, I think that the book really gives some characteristics, you know, uh, in how it works. It talks about that God will protect and care for us, you know. And so I I feel like you have to have a God that will protect and care for you. I feel like, and you got to work towards that, you know. You got to work towards an all-powerful, all-loving God. But really, when I started the steps, he said, to me, the third step is nothing more than committing to the rest of the steps. You know, if you do the third step and you're doing it right, it means that you're going home and writing on your fourth step. You know, that's what, that's how you know you did a good third step is that you're going with the rest. And he said, if you get to 12, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, if you get to 12 and you haven't had that spiritual awakening, then you could just go back to doing what you were doing, you know? And so that made a lot of sense to me. And I think that that kind of low barrier to entry, you know, the way I started working steps was, this is stupid. I don't think it's going to work, but I'll give it a try. You know, that was literally the amount of willingness and open-mindedness I had going into step four. But that was enough to make a start, right? And that's what the book's talking about. Am I even willing to believe? And at that time, I, I think I became willing to believe. You plug into the process. Yeah. And you're moving through that process. Yeah. Okay. So... 
then let's talk about the fourth and the yeah. fifth step and your experience around the fourth and fifth step, what you found out through that process and where it took you. Um, just talk about that a little bit. So it's interesting. Uh, AA didn't invent self-reflection, right? Uh, I, I, I think I think uh, it was Socrates or one of his students said, an unexamined life is a life not worth living, right? Self-examination has been a part of human history, you know? And, and so we didn't invent that. So I, I never like to... Tell people that, you know, oh, these 12 steps are some magical thing mm-hmm. that we invented. You mm-hmm. know, we're, we're taking, we're stealing from a lot of places, right? right. Um, it, it's, to me, it's kind of uh, spirituality for dummies. I've heard people say that mm-hmm. before, and I believe that because Bill I... Bill even called it a spiritual kindergarten. There you go, which mm-hmm. is perfect. Right. And so... For me, you know, as we sat down to write this four-step down, you know, I have no self-awareness. I'm a little kid. I'm an alcoholic. I've been drinking since I was 12. You know, I mean, who knows what my mental capacity and emotional capacity was, but it was not high at that point, right? And so, you know, my entire life had been spent if someone had done something to me, done me wrong in some way, then I would be mad about it at the time. And that afternoon, I'd be more mad about it. And the next day, I'd be furious about it. And the next day, it would just own me. You know, that's how resentment worked for me. On the other side of that, if I had done something bad to someone else, I might feel bad about it at the time. But then later that afternoon, it wasn't that big of a deal. The next day, this person's really overreacting. And then like the third day, somehow it's their fault. You know, so I had never spent time in examination. When he said, we're going to write down your list of resentments, I really thought, I don't have a lot of resentments. You know, I'm this mellow guy, Mm -hmm. you know? And he said, (laughs) he was a great sponsor. This is actually different than the guy who sponsored me through one through three. I got a different sponsor uh, that I worked the rest of the steps with my first go round. And he said, well, just write down the name of friends and family and we'll sit down and talk about it. You know, he really, he really babied me through the process. And so, so I did, I wrote down a list of friends and family and he goes, okay, dad, tell me about your dad. And I'm like, well, he's a jerk. You know? <laughs> right. And he's like, okay, this is what a resentment right. is. You know? And so, and it's interesting that process of writing some of these things down because when I wrote some of them down, the power was taken away right then and there, mm-hmm. you know? And then some of those required some examination. So I'll give you an example with my dad. I, I'm mad at my dad. Why are you mad at my dad? Why are you mad at your dad? Well, because when I steal money from him, he gets mad at me, right? And when you write that down in black and white and say it to someone else, you realize how ridiculous that is, right? Um, And so some of it went away pretty quickly. And like, I very quickly realized that my dad like really cared about me, had my best, like that melted right then and there. And like it went from this place to where I had this resentment against my dad to immediately, oh my gosh, I have been like, the common denominator in all of this insanity in my life, you know, and then some of them took a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit more of a discussion, you know, there's, when you read someone's, when you're doing a fifth step with someone for the first time or doing their fourth step with them, you know, it's hard to see your part in places where maybe someone truly has done wrong to you, right? Because that that happens to people, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, someone gets mugged, you know, Mm -hmm. that's probably something that they didn't have a part in. Mm -hmm. So in discussing some of those kinds of resentments, either the ones where I couldn't see my part or didn't really have much of a part, admittedly to my sponsor, it was okay, your part in this is that you've been carrying this resentment around with you the whole time. You haven't talked with anyone about it. You haven't tried to move on from it. So that's your part. It's your selfishness, you know? And and so that was a very, it was a, it was an eye-opening process for me. And it's interesting as, as you sponsor guys, some guys really get in tune to that quickly. Some people when they're writing down their fourth step, they really start to get depressed or angry. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, I, I remember my, my old line with sponsees up until maybe the fifth or sixth guy that I sponsored was, I'm going to show you how to do the fourth step. We're going to go through it in detail. Today's a Monday. You and I are going to meet on the next Monday and do your fifth step together. And that always worked pretty well. I liked setting a date and sometimes they'd miss the date and we'd, you know, we'd extend it out. But a lot of times it was just, they'd take that week to write that stuff down. So I had this one kid that I was sponsoring brand new, his first four step. And uh, he and I talked fairly frequently, but when I gave him the assignment, he stopped calling me and I thought, gosh, maybe he doesn't want to 
maybe he's scared, you know? And so I had waited a few days to call him. And so I called him like on a Thursday or Friday and he was just in tears talking to me about his four step because it had brought so much, brought up so much anxiety. And he was like, I wrote it like that evening. And I was like, oh my gosh, we should have done it that evening or the next morning. You know, like we should, I want to do this as quickly as you want to do it, you know? And, and so, um, everyone has a little bit of a different reaction for me when I did my four step, and we did it together, you know, there's, there's the resentments, there's the fears, there's the sex inventory, and then there's a the sex ideal. And so, um, as, as I'm writing these things down, there was one thing, you know, and there was the one thing that I was not going to share with my sponsor, you know, the secret that I was going to take to my grave that he didn't need yep. to know. Yeah. And obviously in retrospect, whatever the one thing is, you can probably just scrap your four step and just say the one thing and do, do more good for yourself. You know, I, I, I have spent a lot of time before the program and after the program in misery from not sharing a secret with someone, you know? And so I sat down with him to do the fifth step and we went through the list and it was a short list. I was 17, right? There wasn't, I hadn't done all that much. And at the end of the fifth step, he said, uh, he said, is there anything else? And, you know, I felt like the air got heavy, you know, mm. I looked at him, he looked at me, I looked at him and like too much time had gone by for me to not say I had something. He knew I had something. And so I had actually written it down and put it in my back pocket and pulled it out of my back pocket and said that one thing to him. And man, that was so, you know, I, I don't know if I'd be here today. I don't know where I would be today if I hadn't, if he hadn't asked me that question and I hadn't pulled out that piece of paper. Um, it was just such an important thing for me to go, oh my gosh, one person knows everything, yeah. you know? And it was, um, I got a lot more relief out of that than I thought that I was. So talk about how you felt. After, I mean, everyone feels a little bit different. In other words, some people are walking on the broad highway of the universe. Right. Some folks are, it's just more of, you know, I did what I needed to yeah. do. How did you feel after that? <laughs> I didn't immediately feel like the presence of God, mm -hmm. but... What I did feel like was that I had joined the program, right? Because up until then, we had done some talking and done some reading and we got on our knees and prayed, but I really felt like I had done something material and something that required some bravery, you know, in, in doing this with him. And we were going to do six and seven in this little prayer hut at a church. And it was uh, in the summertime in Austin. It was very hot. And this was not an air-conditioned hut. And, and so I'm sitting there by myself. You know, this is before cell phones so or before I had a cell phone. And so, you know, I've got a clock in there and I'm waiting for the hour to go by and I'm doing everything. And it's it's hot, you know. And, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, is the hour up yet? You know, it just felt like such a long hour. And he's such a sweet guy. He sat in the parking lot in his car waiting for me to finish my six and seven. And so I, but I remember this kind of dark, dank, hot place that I was in. And I just remember opening those doors with kind of sweat, you know, dripping off of me and just a cool breeze hitting me, these trees. And it, it felt, there was a certain amount of freedom that I felt yeah. um, in, in writing the list, telling him everything, mm -hmm. everything that I could come up with at the time. And then that kind of, I sat and did my hour and like I had accomplished something, you know, yeah. it was, it was special. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk then a little bit about the sixth and seventh. Yeah. You mentioned it there, mm -hmm. you know, and people, People who may not know the book, the instructions yep. in the book, right? You take that hour after you've done the right. first step. Yep. Uh, you kind of reflect on what you've done, mm -hmm. making sure that all the stones are in place. Right. Or however that's that right. Phraseology uh, is not making uh, mortar without sand. Yes, yep. yes, that's uh -huh. what it is. And um, uh, but then you know you're you're kind of like you're like wow that was two steps real quick you yeah. know now I'm on to something else right. and. Uh, so talk about six and seven and yep. leading up to eight. So, I mean, six and seven, it, when, for me, when I first did the steps, felt like throwaways. You know, it's like <laughs> I did my hour. Right. I, it's almost like I had to pay like this penance, you know, <laughs> of this hour in this hot place. Um, but then as I mature in sobriety, right, years later, 
you know, you realize that people write books about six and seven yeah. and you start to read six and seven out of the 12 and 12 mm-hmm. and you're like blown away with what six and seven really means. And, and that six and seven is not just a little checkbox that I hit after doing step five, but like, this is my, this is the way I'm supposed to live internally. You know, uh, uh, this is the mindset that I need to have about myself, that I have character defects and that I'm relying on God to help me with those character defects. And it's my responsibility to kind of uncover, discover and discard. And that is, you know, a lather, rinse, repeat process that goes on for the rest of my life because I'm human, right? Until, until I ascend, I'll let you know when that happens. Um, I, I've got to continue to do those things. And so um, I, I say the seventh step prayer every morning, you know, uh, uh, because I feel like in the seventh step of the 12 and 12, so there's the big book, right? Our textbook. And then years later, Bill writes these essays about the steps and, uh, and he also comes up with the traditions, 12 and 12. Uh-huh. And so there's not really work in the 12 and 12, but it's his reflections on the steps. And so six and seven in step seven, it talks, it talks about humility, you know, in, in the 12 and 12. And one of the things that I love in the 12 and 12, I'm going to paraphrase, but it says something to the effect of there's a certain amount of humility required for sobriety, right? Physical sobriety. Right. And then there's another amount of humility that's required for happiness. Yeah. And like, if we want to be happy, we have to go that f- you know, step further. So that, that makes six and seven, not just some event that I do, you know, in the process of working the steps, but this ongoing process of continuing to try to find more, uh, um, try to find more humility. And when I think about enlarging, um, my spiritual experience, you know, the, the big book, there's a ton of cautionary tales in there about what happens if you rest on your laurels, what happens if we don't enlarge our spiritual experience to me, a big part of enlarging that spiritual experience is step six and seven. You talked a little bit ago about, uh, a sponsor switch back there yep. at the beginning. Yep. So what, t- tell me a little bit. About so it's that. funny. I, so this is a side note and no disrespect to my first sponsor. I was dating a girl when I first came into the program, right? Yeah. When I within a couple of weeks of joining the program, and a really sweet girl. I was very fortunate that that's the one that I chose to break the rule of not yeah. being in a relationship <laughs> in her first year. And um, she had a cute friend, and the guy who offered to sponsor me wanted to meet her cute friend. <laughs> So he ended up relapsing, um, and, uh, and so sponsor? my sponsor ended up oh, relapsing, no. and so then I ended up getting a, a new sponsor as a result of that relapse. Did, did, did you ever meet the friend? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. We went on a double date. We went oh, on a really? double date one time, and then he relapsed that shortly after that. So the, so it wasn't like a something like a marriage made in heaven. No, it was not. It wasn't like a royal wedding. No, years it wasn't. Later. It was. I think it was pretty much one and done, if I'm remembering it correctly. Oh well. Uh, so, so you got a new sponsor. I did. And so it's interesting. So there's this huge young people's movement within AA that's gained a lot of legs over the years. Mm-hmm. YPAW, Young yeah, People yeah, in yeah. AA, right? Wikipar is that Icky Paw is the international conference. Okay, gotcha. There's a state conference, which yeah. is Texipaw. There's regional conferences. And that wasn't as big a deal when I got sober in 1990. At least it wasn't in Austin. I think in California and New York, it was a bigger deal, Uh but in, in Austin, it wasn't as big a deal. So we didn't have young people's meetings, but we had meetings that young people would congregate around, you know, and there was two meetings that young people congregated around. And so I went from the unity group, which was where my sister and some of her friends went to this group called Westlake, which was in South Austin. And the Westlake group had a a kind of a separate set of young people that went to that meeting. And as a result of going to that meeting, I met what I would probably consider my best friend today. I met him in my first 90 days of recovery, still sober. Um, there's two other guys that I met within my first 90 days of recovery that we all were kind of running buddies together. And then that was also where I ended up meeting my sponsor, which was, um, a guy who was maybe a year or two older than me, you know, probably with a year or two of sobriety, but just seemed, he just seemed very Zen to me. You know, he was like the calm, he was like the calm young person out of the group that we hung out in. And I was like, I need your calmness, you know? Good. Yeah. So, uh, so that, and so, but your, your, your sponsor, you ended up, so is he still your sponsor? Today? He's not. So I'll tell you my sponsor history a little bit. So, uh, he sponsored me for a couple of more years and then there's this thing that, and I've watched it happen with guys that are friends of mine. 
you're in kind of this group of young people and you start to feel like you're outgrowing it a little bit and you need something else. This is what I felt and I've seen other people feel this too. And so I went from going to that Westlake meeting because there's, it's young people. There's a certain amount, just like with anybody, but especially with young people that are learning how to be adults, there's a certain amount of drama that goes with that and other things, right? And then you date one or two of them and then that becomes toxic by your own hand, right. you know? And so I started to go to Northland, which is one of the oldest meetings in Austin. And I got a, a sponsor there that was, gosh, he was eight or nine years sober. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for the rest of my time in Austin, so I was in Austin from 90... Uh, I was sober in Austin from 90 to 95, uh, finished my high school year there, went through college. And so I had a a sponsor for about three years that was at Northland and I saw him two or three times a week. And then I moved to Florida. So uh, in the process of moving to Florida, I got a sponsor in Florida. Was this because, was your mom there? So my mom was still there in the restaurant business. I graduated school. And so I was going to go help her with the restaurant business in Florida. Uh, and she had gotten sober uh, by then, too. She got sober about two years after I had gotten sober. Oh, really? It went to AA, did the whole thing. Really? And so... Um, so that's interesting. Oh, it's yeah, magical. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I, I went from this position to where... And I really didn't tell my mom what I was doing. Yeah. Um, you know, like any teenager, I was trying to feel private and, yeah. you know, do my own thing. And so I never really told mom how I had gotten sober, just that I had gotten sober. But she sober. knew you were sober. Though. She did. And I honestly didn't think of my mom as alcoholic. And now that I look back on it, I realize she did a really good job of parenting me and kind of hiding that yeah. from me uh, as a kid. And so I, if I thought that I could have been helpful to her and that that's what her problem was, yeah. but I think what had happened to her was that I had been her anchor for a long time yeah. around kind of keeping it in check as best she could. Yeah. And then when I was out of the picture, she just went Levels. for it. Yeah. Right. And so about a couple of years into my recovery, when I was in Austin, my mom called me and she says, oh my gosh, I found Alcoholics Anonymous. You know? <laughs> and, and I was like, you really? <laughs> and so she's telling me all about it. And I was like, well, I'm two years sober at Alcoholics Anonymous. And so now today, yeah. you know, I got to work with my mom when I moved back to Florida while she was sober and I was sober. It was wonderful. And, and um, then I met my wife, kids, I'll tell you the whole story, but uh, came back to Texas in 2008. And now my mom moved back to Texas with us. My mom lives with us now. Oh, wow. And so helps us take care of our kids. Oh, and so we have wow. kind of, you know, with my dad and my mom, both kind of this relationship that I worked really hard to break, you know, in my teenage years, that is as good a relationship as it possibly could be today, yeah. you know? And, and so, you know, part of the magic of the program is that, you know, these things that you just never thought were possible right. are made possible. And that was one of them. Very nice. Well, yeah. talk a little bit about it because that, that, that's yeah. very interesting to me because I had a similar experience, right? I have yep. a family now that I got sober right. and never expected to have uh-huh. that. And, uh, yeah. So moved to Florida after graduating school, got into the restaurant business. My mom and her partner had opened another restaurant while I was there. They opened two more. So mm-hmm. from 2005 or sorry, 1995 to 2002, we had four restaurants at one point. Wow. Uh, in 2002, they ended up selling those restaurants. I had met my wife. I met my wife in 1998 in Florida and um, just immediately knew that she was the one for me. She's not one of us. Um, And so was working for my mom in the restaurant business, met my wife. She and I started a date. We got engaged. We were going to get married. We got married in 2002. And so right around the time I'm getting married, they're saying, hey, we want you to take a more active role in the restaurants. And I'm wanting to tell them, hey, I need more time to be a husband. You know, restaurants are pretty full time job. And so the, the kind of the decision was made to sell the restaurants instead of continuing to run them. And so uh Got married, switched careers uh, when when I got married, and so um, I went from the restaurant business, which was fun, working with my mom, mm-hmm. uh, and, and kind of through divine intervention, got involved in uh, staffing, so recruitment, okay. um, and that's what I started doing in two thousand and three, uh, and have done that since. And so worked for one company for about five years. We had gotten married, we had kids, so we got married in two thousand two. Uh, we had my first child in 2004, second in 2006, and, and so in 2000. So they're how old now? So my daughter is 14, now? Emma, and my son is 11, Austin. Wow. And so, um, 
So we, in 2008, had the opportunity to move back to Texas. And so to a certain extent, I, I dragged my wife kicking and screaming. But, you know, here's this, one of the great things about getting sober young, as you well know, is that, you know, when I met my wife, I was eight years sober. You know, we got married. I was 12 years sober. Had my first kid. I was 14 years sober. Had my second kid. I was 16 years sober. So that's a pretty big mulligan to get over what a lot of alcoholics get, which is already had the family already burned through one or two families, burned through a bunch of relationships. And so I had burned every relationship that I had had to be a 17 year old, but that didn't include the wife and kids or a career at that point. And so uh, I was able to do that, you know, after I was sober. So that's fantastic. That's beautiful. I love to hear that. All right. So let's, let's, I guess, wrap it up here by talking a little bit about uh, uh, whatever you want to say about 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. a spiritual experience, uh, any sort of closing words that yeah. you want to have? I'm always thinking about, thinking about, uh, well, well, this is two different subjects, yep. 10, 11, 12, yep. spiritual experience. There's so much that goes around right. there, right? We could talk yep. an hour about yep. that. Um, but also I'm thinking about the person out there that is listening to this, that maybe is having a hard time staying sober, uh, just to, uh, you know, kind of your experience, strength yep. and hope around that. Yeah. So I would say... Sometimes we get, there's a little confusion, right? When Alcoholics Anonymous first started, Alcoholics Anonymous was a program and a book. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous was, was this book. And over time, as meetings happen and people get into the program, there's this second Alcoholics Anonymous that's the fellowship, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, especially when you're new, depending on where you're going to meetings, depending on who you're listening to, or if you're even listening to anyone, You've got this book and this program that's Alcoholics Anonymous and this fellowship that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think both are incredibly vital, right? But in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, not really a lot of rules. Take what you want, leave the rest. Uh, And then in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't want to say there are rules, but there are guiding principles and directions and suggestions on how we get sober. And so I always feel like that if someone's really struggling with recovery, it's because they have this conception, at least when they're new, they have this conception that if I just go to meetings, then I'm going to stay sober. And that's how people stay sober is by just going to meetings. And I would say that that I got lucky because a person actually physically grabbed me and said, I'll be your sponsor. You know, thank God for that guy. But if you're struggling today with recovery, you know, I would hope that um, as you're going to this meeting, Pick anyone, someone that you like what they have to say in a meeting. At the end of a lot of meetings, people raise their hand and offer to be a sponsor. Or if you have a sponsor, you know, if you go to a meeting right now, you and I go to a meeting, just pick one at random. And we took a poll in that meeting and said, which step are you on? I guarantee you that the vast majority of people, unless it just happened to be an old timer meeting, would say, I'm on step four, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where people, right. if they're on a step, that's where they just get stuck and stop. I don't want to make this list. I don't want to admit things. You get into a meeting and you hear people talk about the fifth step or the ninth step and how difficult they are. And yes, to a certain extent, that can be difficult. I understand that. But an alcoholic who chooses not to work the steps, that is hard work, right. you know? Uh, um, so to me, I, I feel like that's, that's where we can slip up sometimes. And I got good advice as I came in. You know, people were very involved, but I know not every meeting's like that. And sometimes you got to reach out for that, you know, ring yourself. And that, that means sponsorship, get the book, start working the steps, you know. That's great. That's a great way to end it up, Casey. I, I really appreciate it. I have yeah. uh, immensely enjoyed yeah, I think I got to be the 20th yeah, podcast. 20th. So this is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Number 20. That's right. I feel privileged. Thank you for having me. Oh, that's great. All right. So once again, we welcome your thoughts and feedback. Uh, Please contact us at feedback at soberspeak.com. Tell me what you think about Casey. I love Casey. I know I'm going to hear a lot of good comments. Uh, We want to make this a dialogue. You can share your experience, strength, and hope or provide comments and or suggestions. Thank you in whatever form you're able to support, uh, whether sharing the podcast with friends or just listening in as you are able. Once again, I'm going to read page 164 from the book here to close it out. 164 from the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. These are the last uh, couple paragraphs. It says, 
Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thanks for joining us. Keep coming back. It works if you work it.